in any case, here we are. Here we are again. Back again. Post Free Lab podcast. Mm-hmm. Still really hung up on Free Labs though. Yes. Can't yes, get we enough are. <laughs> of the Free Lab idea, the concept, the whole thing. How was the report today, by the way? How did that all turn out? You know, really dragged out. <laughs> <laughs> Which. Hmm. I always drag things out. That's just how I roll. Yeah. You dragged out like all day. Yeah. And I went back to school a few times to pick up stuff. And I was like, oh, I'll finish it when I'm back to school. And I was like, oh, I'll finish it when I'm home. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, actually, I'm supposed to submit this this format. Oh, but those are on my computer at home. (laughs) (laughs) All types of different things. What was the, what did you find the feedback was like from the members of the group? I think it was all pretty good. Yeah. People were like, wow, I learned so many things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Which is true. Yeah. Yeah, it was really good. (laughs) We all learned lots of things. I enjoyed it. So inspired from that. Oh, by the way, I'm Travis Cook-Young. Oh, I'm Andrea. Welcome to (laughs) Ghost Magic. Just know us by now, I guess. Well, we're going to have some new listeners. You never know. Who knows? Someone just stumbled upon this page. International following. I don't know. Someone looking for some sort of scary time or something (laughs) like that. Some sort of ghosty thing. Well, you came to the wrong place. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> this is boring and just talking, but tantalizing all at the same time. So get ready for a wild, get slow ride. Yeah. So inspired by this, we've decided to take a look through the uh, the book Ghost, which references previous free labs and kind of the lineage of the one we just completed, Refuge. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is a book by Brian. I actually read this a few years ago, and it is one of the reasons I came to Dalhousie. Yeah, I read it last summer at working night shifts on breaks, and uh, it made going to Free Lab this summer that much more exciting. So, Ghost Building an Architectural Vision by Brian McKay Lines. We're not going to read the entire book. No, no. We're just going to pick some excerpts that we really yeah. liked, uh, and you can pick it up for yourself. It's from the Princeton Architectural Press. Poppress.com. <laughs> Give Brian to Talbot some more money. That's right. Everybody needs a bit more money. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the first passage, I guess we're going to call these, or yeah. these are chapters, I think. Or... Yeah, I guess so. Essays, sort of? Essays, yeah. First one is by another familiar figure. Yes. None other than... Christine Macy. The Mace. The Mace. <laughs> the Mace dog. The current dean of the Dalhousie's Architectural School. Yeah. Here in 2018, and uh, she, yeah, she'd been heavily involved with these these free labs. She's in a lot of pictures throughout the book. So we're gonna start there. What's yeah. a familiar face? So, do we know just before jumping in, just to talk about the book a little bit? Um, it covers a number of these different projects, um, having write-ups with Brian, and then as well as a write-up from a participant in the mm-hmm. in that free lab. So in this one. I'm assuming Christine was a participant. Yeah. Participant or like the guest critics or whoever the the fancy invites were. Right. So, and this was for Ghost One, which ran from May 2nd to August 26, 1994. So, theirs was a little bit longer. It a little bit longer of a time than we had. May 2nd to August 26th? It's like the entire summer term. What? And they built a tent. Well, let's see. <laughs> see what's up Speaking here. Speaking of which, are you going to go back to uh, help with... Did you see that email from Talbot? No, I didn't see the email yet. Yeah. Yeah, he's asking for volunteers to go finish the interior cladding. Volunteers or paid interiors? 
volunteers. Yeah, I don't think I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, I could probably pop up. I can pop up for oh, a day or something like that. So but fun. I want to go, but I'm homeward bound tomorrow. So. Yeah, that's that thing. Yeah, um, yeah, I could go for a day, but I couldn't afford to like keep living up there and doing all these things. I thought you were going to just stay up there and be a mountain man. Yeah, I mean, Wasn't I felt that? like I was a mountain man. <laughs> and then you're like, no, then I got I'm back in the it. city and I was like, uh, I really just like the side by sides, you know? <laughs> no, I did really love being in the woods. I love that type of force I was out there as well. So, again, different other things I experienced. Really open. Yeah. Kind of walk everywhere. So, deciduous hardwoods. I'll definitely make it up there again, but. <laughs> when it's done, so you can just see the finished product. That would be awesome. <laughs> that would be great. Great. Um, um, yeah, so, so. Anyway. Jump right into Ghost this. Ghost stories uh, by Christine Macy. Take it away. Okay. <laughs> For most of us, our first encounter with ghosts is through stories. We may remember parents or grandparents relating crucial events in the lives of ancestors, school teachers, bringing to life forgotten figures from the past, or religious teachers revealing aspects of the spirit world. Riveting, evocative, at times terrifying, these stories allow us to feel and breathe the atmosphere of the past. We can imagine ourselves there. Ghost stories are a form of travel, not across space to other countries and cultures, but across time, carrying our imagination with us. In the maritime provinces of Canada, stories from the past color all aspects of present day life. As a native son of Nova Scotia, Brian McKay Lyons likes to tell stories in person or through his projects. He anchors his buildings in local stories, the vernacular, you might say, very popular word. <laughs> Loves Dalhousie Architecture School. Mm -hmm. uh, and it took me a long time to figure out what it actually meant. <laughs> like I knew, but I didn't really know. But anyways, um, whether the story is true or not is immaterial. K-Lion's tales, like good ghost stories, weave magic around the telling. They evoke a timeless culture and landscape and allow the listener to project him or herself into this imaginary ideal. As the fables and parables, such stories often carry a lesson. Quote, close your eyes and imagine a foggy midsummer's night. Imagine the glowing, translucent ghosts of archetypal buildings on the ruins of an abandoned village at the edge of the world. End quote. This is McKay Lyon's ev evocation of ghosts, the first of a series of summer projects in the rural village of Upper Kingsburg on, <clears throat> on Nova Scotia's south shore. In the first ghost, nine architecture students set up camp on a ridge overlooking the back 40 acres of McKay Lyon's summer house during the month of July. Before they even began the lab, the students had to set up their rudimentary spaces of social life and retreat, their sleeping area, cooking site, privy, and fire ring. Then they set to work. The project site lay in the valley below the ridge encampment, a stone's throw from the ocean's edge. Their first task was to clear out the overgrowth, trash, and rubble that had filled the ruins of what was once, what once was a dwelling so that the outline of the old foundations could be clearly seen. Moving their efforts to the woods on the hill, they marked white spruce and pine trees of desired diameter, chopped them down, and stripped them of the limbs and bark. They fashioned their timber into a brace frame over the old foundations, reconstructing the outline of the traditional one-and-a-half-story house with a gable roof, the kind found throughout the village, up the river, and over much of the province. The last task was to envelop the building's skeleton in large sheets of plastic tarp to complete its exterior walls. The result was a resurrection of a house silhouette in a cowfield, an apparition raised from earlier times. It could have been one of the earliest houses built along the Le Havre estuary, 
like the one Samuel de Champlain spotted in 1604 as he sailed up the river towards his landfall on the North American continent. It could have been one of the sturdy houses erected by Dutch and German-speaking settlers on land granted by the British in the 1750s. It could have been the ancestral seat of one of the established shipbuilding fishing farming families of 19th century Nova Scotia. For local old-timers, it reminded them of the landscape of their youth and childhood. On the final day of the lab, McKay Lyons and his students invited colleagues and classmates from Halifax, neighbors from all around, and local musicians to attend the closing event of Ghost. Oh, that sounds a little familiar. <laughs> they, together with friends and passerby, converged in the night, drawn to the glowing profile of the reconstructed house. I was in one of the many small groups of people heading down the hill toward what I saw was just a radiant glow at first, through the mist rising off the meadow as the night chill descended. As we drew nearer to the light, the profile of the house rose into relief, a lantern at a giant scale, its translucent wrapping distended with the heat rising off the roaring bonfire inside. We passed through an opening in the tarpaulin where the door, I found tarpaulin is a little bit much, where the door would, <laughs> the door would have been in the original house and found ourselves in a crowd of smiling faces bathed in firelight, sharing drinks and laughter while leaning against the battered boulders of the foundation. One group huddled around Judy Aubersey. Uh, Do you know who she is? No. No. Let's check that out. Um, a student and a master storyteller from Caraco? Who? <laughs> yeah, I was like. Isn't that. Um, isn't it like. That's that place where that the cure is from. I was going to say, isn't this like a booze <laughs> thing? Like the banana <laughs> thing? Yeah. Booze thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, There's definitely booze there. Nice. I'll tell uh, you that much. Fantastic. Um. Mestro Taylor from, I'm going to say Caraco. I think it's cause it's got like a, in French they call it a CD. Right, the little sweetly. So usually that means it's a s sound. So it's Curacao. Curacao? Curacao. I've heard that as well. In, that's what it would be in French anyway. Let's go with that one. From Curacao, who is sharing a grandmother's Caribbean ghost stories, closing the loop of maritime exchange between Europe, North America, and the West Indies with her Dutch and Creole stories. This ghost house, resurrected from the past, served as a conduit between history and story, memory and possibility. I wanted to learn how to live at last, writes Jack Derrida, by being with ghosts. It is necessary to speak about the ghosts. He continues, do the ghost and with it, as no ethics is possible without acknowledging respect for these others who are already dead or not yet born. Oof. By allowing a multitude of ghosts, generations of ghosts, to speak, we can break the domination of the present, open ourselves up to memory and heritage, and ultimately think about life beyond the present, towards survival of the larger culture and the world we live in. This essay looks at three ghost stories that McKay Lyons tells about Upper Kingsburg. Okay, so this is the first essay, also written by Christine Macy. Macy? I guess it's just three stories. Interesting. Okay. I, I think she's sort of telling Brian's stories that he tells. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Um, so, beginning here is Champlain's landfall. In 1604, French explorer Samuel de Champlain took refuge in the river estuary he named La Havre, or the Haven. He mapped, at that time, a European-style house on what would eventually become our ghost site. The first lesson is about home. 
when the expedition leader Pierre Dugois, Ser de Mont, <laughs> and his cartographer Champlain first saw a headland of the North American continent rising out of the Atlantic Ocean, they named it Cap de la. He How do I say that one? Hever? Ev. Ev? Yeah. I was just feel so intimidated with your tracker. <laughs> um, in memory of the last cape they passed in France before sailing across the sea. Yet according to Mikhail Lyon's ghost story, the name was not just a fortuitous accident. It was a sign that this place was to become a safe haven for settling down. Very scary words there. <laughs> <laughs> Champlain, a cartographer, and the first drawing he made of the New World was of the Hague estuary. It shows teepees and a few European houses. The story is that these were from an earlier Basque fishing camp. The next lesson is about traces. The few European houses are traces of earlier settlers, French, Basque, or Portuguese fishermen, who decided to stay with the native Mi'kmaq people rather than return to Europe at the end of their fishing season, using the winter to collect valuable furs for trading with those who would return the following summer. According to Champlain in his Voyage, published in 1605, the people of Brittany, Normandy, and the Basque County country were already frequenting the Great Banks of Newfoundland in 1504 and for a long time before that. The European-style house then, drawn by Champlain on his map, was a house of an enterprising fisherman or of his descendant established long before the first official attempts at colonization and settlement. Champlain anchored only briefly at the mouth of the Havre River before moving south to the Bay of Fundy. But while there, he drew a chart of the river's mouth and the harbor. The act of tracing, the first drawing he made in the New World, turns a ghost story into an architectural tale. Hmm. Before the digital age permeated the practice of architecture, architects used to speak of the skeleton or the bones of a building. These were the generating lines and structure of a work of architecture, traced lightly onto the fresh vellum. Layer after layer of drawing would flush, flush it out adding skin and systems, dimensions, and all the other information necessary for construction. Such drawings, created over months by many hands working on the same sheets, revealed shadows of earlier drawings that appeared on a sheet that had worked over, erased, and reworked. <laughs> this sounds like what they make us do. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like, flesh it out. I've definitely heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. These ghosts were memories, relics of bygone schemes, ancestors, if you will, of the building being finalized on the page. Today, such ghosted drawings are only ghost stories, as each architectural drawing comes fresh from the plotter without visible trace of earlier schemes or decisions or changes of heart. <laughs> yeah, definitely, a, like, all my, my B2 project mm. had, like, all the decisions yeah. still on there. Right on like, there, yeah. Oh, there was a lot of erasing. Well, yours, uh, yours was had incited some midterm envy, I think, from a lot of people. <laughs> Everyone's like, really appreciated your project. It was very well uh Well, at midterm, though, I inked it. Oh, okay. And at the end, I did not, and it was very smeary, and there was a lot of erasing lines. Yeah, yeah. But was it like the same drawing, or? No, the, the okay. project changed a lot. Okay. But uh, Brian gave me a real nice mark on that. Nice, so. nice. <laughs> you, that was the one that had like three dining rooms or something like that, didn't you? Have, like... <laughs> you were you were joking about my three dining rooms. No, Loved it had it. two dining rooms because there was two units, oh. and then it also had a workshop, so there was a table in there too. Right. Okay. <laughs> three places to dine. This wonderful I guess. spot. 
That's nice. Anyway, um, plotted sheets are unencumbered by memories of the past, yet in the design process, architects still use trace to carry one set of building studies forward into the next. In analyzing a site, they look at layers of habitation, seeing the cumulative traces of human settlement as a palimpsest of marks made on the surface of the earth, scraped clean with each successive wave of settlement to be made anew, yet carrying the faint records of earlier patterns. On the ghost site, McKay Lyons works with exactly such traces, identifying the lines, residues, and marks of earlier buildings to anchor, or better, to root his new works in this same time-scarred landscape. Interesting. Yeah, I do like this concept of applying what we do with Trace. What we did with Trace. What we will probably still do with Trace. Oh, yes, very much. Um, with actually the real world and doing these types of things. Like, yeah. there wasn't so much of that history on our actual site no. where we built, but there was in the area. And I would have liked to have more information on that previous farm or like pictures or yeah, like that's ancestors true. talking to uh, mm-hmm. people who remembered it when it was. You know, I think that yeah. could be really. I do also like the idea, like Talbot was saying, that, you know, we're just using untreated lumber. It's not even cedar or something. So it's going to rot in like 10 years. Right. And then there's going to be a new free lab project built built on the foundation. Yeah, I actually showed... uh, Yeah, no, it's a wonderful thing. Just do something new. Yeah. Um, I showed a few pictures to a builder buddy of mine yesterday. And he just couldn't believe that we accomplished so much in two weeks. (laughs) And bunch he's just, of amateurs he's yeah like he's, just like, he's like so you must use some really pressure treated wood and all that stuff and I'm like no use this raw lumber and he couldn't believe that we were going to invest so much time and effort into something that looked beautiful like that and then just to rot away yeah but that's really the poetic move of totally of the whole thing right so love it. yeah it's pretty sweet so next little essay N- yeah next, next story. story two neighbors and a wall <laughs> and I can read through this uh excerpt here as well Um, throughout the 17th and 18th centuries French settlers peopled the shores of the Le Havre River love this phrase peopled living (laughs) with the aboriginal Mi'kmaq in villages and encampments and carrying on fishing furrying forestry (laughs) (laughs) and trade until the Acadian expulsion in the mid 18th century the traces of the settlement and the one that followed lead us to the second ghost story of the site after the expulsion of the Acadians, <laughs> <laughs> their farms and foundations in La Havre drainage basin were occupied by German and Swiss settlers. These new settlers in the 1750s built a small farming and fishing villages on our ghost site of what seems like the end of the earth. This village on a cliff over the beach was a thriving place until the 1940s when it was abandoned. Now only the stone foundations of dozens of buildings remain. The extended family structure is evident. Three houses with three massive stone chimneys next to three barns with six wells, three chicken houses, countless outbuildings, and 12 fish sheds. Why were these pragmatic pioneers concerned with classical order? Why did they take the trouble to align their houses, hearths, and wells on the north-south axis? This is a magical, silent place where a ghost of the community can be felt. Can I just take a moment to ask if hearth is an east coast thing? I don't, I don't know. I, it's not like... I had never heard, like, let's go gather around the hearth or in things like no, that. No, but, like, I say hearth. Oh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I heard somebody who I think was, like, 
ESL say yeah. hearth. <laughs> yeah, I was so. like, what are you saying? And then you said hearth. I, I said like, hearth. Oh, well, is it maybe like. that's just an East Coast thing. It could be. I mean, it is like H Earth. Like, you don't say. Right, like Earth. Earth like, I'm from planet Earth. True. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. Anyways. I might start saying Earth. Earth? Yeah, like planet Earth. <laughs> so I could say her. <laughs> Anyway, (laughs) good question. Uh, Just to give, there's been a lot of East Coast, West Coast talk over the past little bit and identifying things. One of the things where S's were added to, this is a Lewis Canning right here. You'll hear this in our previous podcast. (laughs) You will have already heard this. You will have already heard this, but the difference between like, I had five beer or I had five beers. Or do you want to go for beer or do you want to go for beers? Yes. Yes. The S is the West Coast way, right? I don't know. Like, I've heard people say it both ways on the West Coast. Interesting. And I think I use it interchangeably just to, like... I like to say beers when I'm trying to be cute. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I think I, pro- I probably already said this. Yeah, like, let's have some beers, you guys. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, encouraging Where the beers. I was like, yeah, I don't know. You're like, I need a oh, beer. Oh, yeah, I drank five beer. <laughs> <laughs> Different accent altogether. That sounds altogether. like a thing I would say. You know, I love it. I uh, Yeah, so I've been peppering S's in every once in a while just to see... <laughs> See if they come up, see if people say things about them. So Anywheres. Any, just anywhere. Anywheres, <laughs> nowheres. Somewheres. Yeah. I love that one. Okay. Okay, so... Back to business here. <laughs> McKay Lyons adds in Pots and Pans, quote, The village has four extended families. Mosher's, Romkeys. Oh, there are some Romkeys on Pelham Street in oh. Lunenburg. Oh, yeah. Anyway, nice. Romkeys, brackets, Oxners, <laughs> Mossman's, and Hurdles. <laughs> Each family has three sons, and so three houses. Within these families, people are placed in symmetrical relationships with each other. Squared off couplets of twos or fours, or stable triangles of three sons in their houses. Geometry aligns these families with their land along north-south axes, east-west settlements, and radiating pinwheels that extend outward in the landscape. At work, as McKay Lyons suggests, uh, is a classical ordering system. The numbers come from the Renaissance architectural tradition of perfect geometries in which earthly and celestial patterns align. When earth and heavens are brought into congruence through geometric arts such as architecture or dance, the earthly, earthly order, <laughs> <laughs> earthly order, yeah, exactly, manifests the perfection of the heavens. This is the belief system behind ideal cities of the Renaissance, such as Philar. Philaretes Sforzinda Where's Paul at when you need her Although perfect geometries reflect an ideal that exists primarily in the mind, they have always exerted a steady gravitational pull on the imaginations of architects Thus, we should not be surprised to find that the historical record of actual settlement is at odds with the idealized representation presented in the story But it is not merely, as we shall soon see a simple matter of truth versus fiction. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> In this corner, truth. We find that the ancestors of the Mosher clan of Upper Kingsburg originated in Switzerland. Responding to the appeal of the British Crown for European Protestants to settle Canada, they descended the Rhine River. They descended the Rhine River to Rotterdam, where they boarded the Speedwell in the summer of 1751. In years between 1750 and 1752. 12 shiploads of such foreign Protestants from Germany, Switzerland, and Holland arrived in Halifax. 
the result of an official policy to repopulate lands that had been evacuated of 150 years of French Acadian settlement. See, it's like evacuated was a the word there, but it's, I guess that's true. But they're like forced out, right? You know what I mean? Like, like oh, there's no people there anymore. We better put some people in there. But yeah, like, did the people have to leave to make room for these people to get in there? It's kind yeah. Of like the blacksmith Jacob Mosier and his wife Anna Maria embarked on the journey with their children, a nearly grown daughter, and four younger boys. After arriving in Halifax, they were assigned two lots and a 100-acre tract in Upper Kingsburg. They had more children after arriving in the New World, and in 1764, Mrs. Mosier was working as a midwife in the growing town of Lunenburg. The same boat also brought Peter Mosier, who may have been the brother of Jacob, since kin often traveled together. The speedwell carried no passenger with the name Romke, but a likely candidate is Johann Wendell Ramekin, yeah? <laughs> who, in his middle age, departed from Rotterdam for Halifax aboard the Anne in 1750 with his wife, Anna Margaret Heurig and their grown children, Ursula, who died shortly after arrival, Tibbet, Anna Maria, Conrad, and Anna. I would have liked to see an Ursula Jr. in there. <laughs> Ursula too. Um, in, in the German Pal Palatinate on the Rhine River, Wendell had been a master linen weaver. The family spent three winters in Halifax before moving to Lunenburg, eventually settling at a hamlet called Five Houses on the Lehav River, where Anna Margarita's brother, Leonard Heurig had been assigned a 30-acre farm lot. In the eight generations between their arrival in Nova Scotia and the close of this ghost story, the family name gradually anglicized to Ro into Romke. So it was Heurig into Romke? No, Ramekin. Oh, Ramekin, Ramekin, Ramke, Romke. Romke, yeah. I can see that. <laughs> Neither the Moshers nor the Romkes had sons in threes. The descendants of Jacob and Anna Maria Moser typically had 10 or more children up to the end of the 19th century when much smaller families became the norm. The Ramekin's only son, Conrad, also finally settled down in five houses and his 11 children that survived, survived to adulthood, the six boys averaged eight children apiece and the five daughters married into other families, distributing rel relatives all through the lower Lahav River Basin including the communities of Riverport, Kingsburg, and Rose Bay. So I wonder how it's possible that they would have less children moving forwards, <laughs> right? It's like, is it some sort of introduction of like abstinence in religion or something like that? You know what I mean? It's like... Yeah, I don't know. They're just a bit more careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They considered it a little bit further. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just kind of interesting. Um, in her influential book, Fiction in the Archives, the historian Natalie Zeman Davis explores how historical stories are actually shaped for their purposes, reflecting the literary tastes and the cultural strategies of their tellers. The fiction in history refers to the craft that goes into stories, fabrication we might say, navigate the frontier between truth and fiction. For that matter, to understand and appreciate a story at all, one must consider the genre in which the person is writing or speaking and the conventions he or she is expected to follow. Thus, as McKay Lyons hears stories, takes them in, and retells them in his own way, he crafts them to an architectural ends. If they were preserved instead of being retold, they would merely be records from the past, neither heard nor really understood. Once again, we turn to Dorita, who, in the film Ghost Dance, talks about how ghost stories help us make the past part of the present to accept it and our place in relation to it.
Hmm. I really feel like that is something that <coughs> Talbot also does. Like, he's like, very much about the story. Yeah. And it felt like part of this... Like our oh, the recreation? Lab. Yeah, the... the it's... Like part and of stuff? it is, like, creating a story. Right, okay. It's like, oh... And I remember that in B1, too. It's like, you, you need to, like, make a story about this. Interesting. You know? Have the narration. Yeah. Yeah. Or even the narrative, it, I mean. Even yeah. if it no, isn't always completely true. Right, okay. <laughs> you gotta... You kind of have to craft a little story to sort of make it stronger. So, the story of uh, Refuge 2, then is what prospect prospect yeah <laughs> it's still called Ref- everybody in our i know well it's tough it's, it's what it says in the poster too. yeah it's what it says and on the I was poster like, no i'm calling this prospect right yeah um, i'm with you on that as well by the way but i just i don't know is this thing about having musicians play there like that's a total story right okay you it's... know on a regular basis are people going up there to play music not really but maybe because we set the stage Ooh. and like you know I don't know. The whole thing at the end was a bit too choreographed for me. Like, it right. was beautiful, but right. it was kind of set up. But having that kind of, you know, like, creates this story. Right. And now maybe, I don't know, starts some tradition of people coming up there to play music. Sure. Like, yeah, I can imagine the bagpipes, Ian McKinnon and the bagpipes and the story of what happened with them last summer on mm-hmm. the beach and where that kind of came about organically it's definitely something that we recreated many times over the two weeks in, in different <laughs> yeah, places. Yeah, was always trying to recreate that. Yeah, and uh, by the way, uh, shout out to Ian McKinnon for his slow walking. That is like the craziest thing. I was watching a video of it, and I was trying to do it, and it's like, it's tough to do. And <laughs> yeah. I can move pretty slow if I want to, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Well, maybe playing a bagpipe actively while walking would slow you down because... You're also playing a bagpipe. Right, I'm focused on bagpipes. Yeah. But it takes a lot to focus on your feet there, too. It mm-hmm. might be too much. Anyways, yeah, so the story of that, so there's the music story. There's also the story of it being, like, the first thing, and that an impermanent thing in what could become a much larger thing. I thought right. that was interesting, like, the initial spike in the ground type yeah. of a deal, which I liked. That us as students get to go out there and kind of... Uh, set that there I had mentioned yeah. before like when the first when the first deck was completed I well even just like half of it was decked and uh, we left it there that day just seeing this kind of intervention this uh, mm-hmm. you know human intervention among the woods was kind of a powerful thing for me so I liked I like that sort of stuff yeah <laughs> alright so yeah there's this quote from Dorito Yes. That from? Yes. I've been intrigued by a particular theory of ghosts, which psychoanalyst friends of mine developed from Freud. In normal mourning, says Freud, one internalizes the dead. One takes the dead into oneself and assimilates them. This internalization, which is at the same time an idealization, accepts the dead. In a mourning that doesn't develop naturally, according to this theory, the dead are taken into us, but don't become part of us. They just occupy a place in our bodies. They haunt our bodies and ventriloquize our speech. And we become a sort of graveyard for ghosts. It's terrifying. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I don't know. I wouldn't want to be a ventriloquist for a ghost. No, thank you. If we try to preserve the past as it was rather than accept it as memory, we cannot fully understand it or apply it to the present. 
The stories we tell about the past may be part of a tradition, yet still our own. This is because Zeman Davis suggests traditions are ways of thinking, doing, and feeling that we inherit from the past. There's no such thing as a true or authentic tradition, she suggests. Rather, tradition is made of many voices, and within tradition, quote, there can be different paths and a room even to find something new, while perhaps labeling traditional innovations that expand the boundaries or redraw them in a different shape usually takes something from what went before, end quote. This is what McKay Lyons is trying to do with his contemporary regional architecture in Nova Scotia, or quote, regional, end quote, architecture <laughs> in Nova Scotia, anchoring it in tradition while accepting his own voice, his memories, and his interpretations of the place as valid parts of that tradition. Okay, and here's the next little story mm. called Beulah's Memories in the Cellar and the Attic. Although the Romke clan was anchored in five houses, they had relations all across the Lohav region. By the fourth generation, mid-19th century, one Romke cousin, a John Leonard Romke, to be precise, settled with his wife Maria to farm in Upper Kingsburg, where they had three girls and a son, Henry. Henry was widowed early, and in middle age he remarried again to Drusilla Oxner. What a name. <laughs> Drusilla! A 40-year-old Oxner. spinster from Lower Lahav. Hold on a second. Let's explore that for a second. <laughs> Drusilla Oxner, the 40-year-old spinster? <laughs> that's, like a, that's like a tale all in its own. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We should talk to Alice to write a poem about that. Oh, yeah. Drusilla I Oxner. Should. The haunted spinster. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry. Hmm, where were we? Um, the county census of 1911 describes the household. 38-year-old Ambrose Oxner, now officially head of the family, and his wife, Selena. Their three older daughters, Helen, Bessie, and Maggie, and three younger sons, Albert, Harry, and William. They lived with Selena's elderly parents, Henry and Drusilla Romke. The Oxner's middle child and their oldest son, Albert, married Beulah May Zink, taking us to our third and last ghost story. Don't want to drag this out much further, but I will mention that Drusella Oxner and Drusella Romke, this Drusella name was just flying around to this place <laughs> yeah. at this point in time. Drusella, Super Dr- trendy Drusella, in Drusella, the Drusella, Lahav Drusella, region. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, I've actually got a good story about the Lahav region in my experiences. Here. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, okay, so take us to the last ghost story. This story is about the matriarch of the community, my neighbor Beulah Oxner. She was an orphan. Her mother died when she was young, and her father, rather than raise her, put her to work as a domestic in the community. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) She lived in the basement of the original Mosier home, where we built the first coast, putting up sausages, preserves, pickles, and Solomon Gundy, which is pickled herring. Albert Oxner, whose father married into the Romke family, had cattle, which he pasteurized near the river, not far from the Mosier home. Pastured, not pasteurized. Pastured near the river. Not far from the Mosier home. He and Beulah courted and got married, and she moved into the Romney house up the hill. The dream. <laughs> when she had set up a household of her own, her father moved back in with her. Oh, not the dream. <laughs> <laughs> the basement of the ghost was the place where she had worked as a young girl in the house that used to be there. So, let me get this right. He put her out to go and work. Then she got married into this other family, and then dad moved into the house. Yeah. What a dad. What a dad. This guy's just using left, right, and center. Using and abusing. Yeah. Not a very nice guy. Hmm. 
<laughs> this story is about family lost and gained and the difference between house and home. Beulah Oxner was born in Zinc, and her family had been established in Rose Bay since the 18th century. In one of that village's cemeteries, a headstone tells us that Laura Hilda Zinc, wife of James Zinc, died in late 1918, the year of the massive influenza epidemic, at 24 years of age. She left behind the three-year-old Beulah May and a brother, Alan, who had, who had to be cared for by female relatives of the young widower, at least until the children were old enough to be put to work. Thus, the excavated foundations of ghosts brought up memories of hardship as well. Beulah's memory, sorry, I was just thinking about that there. Beulah's memories in the cellars and attics of Upper Kingsburg were triggered by spaces she had experienced long ago. They were summed up through her senses and the landscape. The sound of the wind through the glass, grass, the light played off the waves in the tidal river, and the smell of sea air. And of course her age gave her a vast store of memories to draw from, as she told stories about her landscape to McKay Lines and the students working on Ghost. Ghosts such as these, memories and architecture, weave the past into the present, giving meaning and continuity to actions in the here and now. Nice, so that's... That's our yeah. talk on Christine Macy, Ghost One. So this will be an interesting series. We'll definitely find some passages to read here that are talking about people's experiences there and perhaps less about Brian's style of storytelling. <laughs> perhaps, if we can escape it. Yeah. Maybe we can. I feel a little bit weird about reading the ones that Brian wrote. Right. But I don't know, maybe we'll do that too. We'll see. Let's see how this but goes along. we didn't along. talk about the pictures. No, okay. We usually <laughs> talk about the pictures. They're we do. Of, um, the building of Ghost One, which um, I have to say, even though we definitely we accomplished a huge amount, mm. and we couldn't have done it in the style of Ghost One. Right. But there's a part of me that when I saw like, you know, like Rogers Free Lab got to all their own trees and right. stuff like that yeah. I was kind of like oh I wish we got to do that too because this one yeah they they fell their own trees and stripped them and right everything was resourced it's more like there. this hippie back to the lander thing which is that's right up which your is, alley which is that's right up my thing. alley yeah, as yeah. opposed to the generators and side by sides right yeah like if we <laughs> could have fueled our accomplishments yeah like and this is where we are uh, opposites. I would have liked to like chop her in some steel girders. It's <laughs> <laughs> like have that going on and uh, yeah. and put something really tall up there. You know? <laughs> yeah. Something really big, really big. Mm-hmm. Anyways, I guess until uh, the next time. Mm-hmm. This is uh, Travis Cook Young signing off from Ghosts of Magic. Yep, our free lab mini series. Hey, oh, oh look, we get some people. Nice. Oh, Shannon Bea. Bye, guys. See ya.